0: This is Mouth
1: Media Network. Amplify and connect. It was quite a ride. (laughs) A lot of ups and downs, a lot of joys. Uh, the biggest one is the joy of hospitality, hosting people in your place. For me, that's the biggest highlight.
0: Rita Jamet has led an exotic and charmed life, is the co-owner of the acclaimed La Caravelle restaurant, which she ran for 20 years. She's the proprietor of La Caravelle Champagne and the mother of three accomplished sons, one of whom is the co-founder of Sweet Green. She's been an inspiration and role model for women in hospitality for decades. It's frankly no surprise she's now known as the chief bubble officer of her company. And if New York were to have an ambassador of hospitality, Rita Jamais would be it. This is her story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves, each of us in our own way is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Rita, jamais. It is amazing to have you with me today in the kitchen. I've known you for a long time, and I really don't know your whole story. I know part of it is very glamorous, I know part of it is very international, but you are the hardest working woman I know. And I have always said that if New York were to have an ambassador of hospitality, it would be and should be and could be you. What an amazing
1: introduction. (laughs) Hi, Roseanne. I'm thrilled and honored to be here because I am a huge fan of yours. Thank you. I've been for many years.
0: Oh, so this is so, such a great way to, to get to know each other a little bit better. But this is really about you and your story. Rita, you and your husband ran the most important restaurant, one of the most important restaurants in New York for decades, and it was called La Caravelle. Yes. I don't know the genesis of the restaurant, when it opened, so what Car- you all did before.
1: Okay, La Caravelle opened in 1960. Oh. September nineteen sixty, uh, it was opened by two Frenchmen, uh, Robert Meza and Fred Decre, who used to work at Le Pavillon, ah. which really was the genesis of all major French restaurants that opened in New York. Yes, and uh, Le Pavillon was was a restaurant created at the same time or right after the uh, World Exhibition. Um, I forget what at year. the world
0: World's Fair I think sixty four yes. is that yes. possible mm-hmm. um, or yeah, earlier
1: early earlier oh earlier and uh, it was to represent France as you know each country had their their pavilion yes and this is Le Pavillon that state so that's the genesis interestingly enough there's a cute little um, time wink in there is that the the gentleman who facilitated the the opening of the French pavilion here was uh, Andre's godfather at the time.
0: Oh, that's because amazing. He was, yes,
1: he was very close to the Drouin family. Drouin being one of the biggest restaurants in Paris, one of the most iconic restaurants Drouin. Paris. D R O U A N T. And their team came and helped establish that famous pavilion for the for the world fair.
0: Now this was Henri Soulet.
1: Yes, he brought Henri Soulet.
0: Ah, okay. Right. And when you say Andre, this is your husband? My
1: husband, yes.
0: Well, wow. yeah. and even though this show is really about women, sometimes men kind of get into the conversation a little bit. So we can talk for a minute about Andre, your husband. Right. Um, Andre Jamais. But his, he comes from a very illustrious uh, French family who t- yes. owns. His father,
1: yes. Hippolyte, founded the Bristol Hotel. And Andre <laughs> is the 10th of 10 children.
0: Wow. No twins.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's really remarkable, Rita. And I don't even know where you grew up or what your, your so my childhood family, is like. Yeah, mm-hmm. my
1: family is originally from Iraq. We're Chaldeans from Iraq. Wow. However, I never lived in Iraq. Um, I was born in Saudi Arabia hmm. because my father uh, left Iraq for he had a work opportunity in Saudi Arabia. And so they established there for a few years and I was born in Jeddah. So I stayed there. I knew
0: you were very exotic, but I didn't realize how. Yeah, When people (laughs) ask
1: me, where do you come from, I ask, do you have five
0: minutes? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we do. We do.
1: Amazing. Um, So I stayed in Jeddah until the age of five. And Mm. when time came to go to school, um, I couldn't attend the local schools because I was not Muslim. So um, I was put in a French Catholic boarding school in Beirut. Hmm. Where all the my aunts and mom and everybody had gone previously, so I guess it was a family tradition. And it used to be done a lot more in the Middle East in the old days. For what reason, I'm not sure.
0: You mean that there would be uh, lines? That they put the
1: kids in all the almost automatically the children in boarding school.
0: Boys and girls. Boys and girls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you spent a lot of time in Lebanon. In Lebanon,
1: yes. Uh, From age five to twelve. And I had family there. Uh, my uncles, my my sister who married a Lebanese man. And mm-hmm. so I would see the family on weekends. And uh, I'm very attached to Lebanon.
0: Mm. Uh, obviously I've Obviously, my blood been... is
1: Iraqi, but I'm very attached to Lebanon.
0: Yes. Um, because of that particular period
1: of time? Because it... of that period of time, because that country has a magic uh, to it. That just, it's hard to explain the hospitality. I mean, mm. I know it's throughout the Middle East, but uh, in Lebanon particularly. And
0: I've heard that, Rita. I've also heard that, was it Beirut? that was considered the Paris of the Middle East? Exactly. exactly. So maybe this story will kind of spiral and, mm-hmm. and, right? <laughs> and evolve, <laughs> that there's some connection between Paris and, and yeah, Beirut. Also, Lebanon
1: you. was a French protectorate. Right. So in my family, we spoke uh, French at home. French is my main language.
0: Mm-hmm. And so no connections really to Iraq at all anymore? Um, Not much, no. But, but you said it's kind of in your well, blood. Well, when <laughs> it's your,
1: your blood, you know, yes. the, that's really where you are from. So your I mother think.
0: and father are Iraqi, yes, and moved to uh, Jeddah, Jeddah, and, th- and, then, and then to and Beirut.
1: Then they actually didn't move to Beirut. They kind of had a foot there, but they mm-hmm. eventually they moved to Switzerland because when my father was doing his all his work projects and travels, he fell in love with Switzerland, and he said, "Time to leave the Middle East, which is uh, a barrel of powder ready to explode." Mm. How prescient mm-hmm. of him! <laughs> And so they established in Switzerland and still left me in Beirut for a couple of years Mm -hmm. where I was rebelling a little bit. They they said, it's good for you. You keep studying Arabic because when you study in Lebanon, you do everything in French and everything in Arabic. It's a heavy workload.
0: Yes, it sounds like it.
1: And the Arabic being the reason that kept me away from my parents, I I didn't like it. I kind of Mm. started to resent it. So... um, Hmm. I kind of pushed and pushed and pushed. I'm pretty persistent when I want something. I mean, poor people who are around me, they just, one day or another, just for me to stop asking for it, they'll say, okay. <laughs> so that's what happened. So I ended up in Switzerland, in Geneva, where my parents were established. Um, still another French Catholic boarding school, but at least I saw you my parents closer. twice a week and, you know, I was I was in a... Same city as they were.
0: Mm. And how old were you? After 12, 12, you went Yeah, back to be closer to them. And yes. what happened to your Arabic? Did you just let it
1: my Arabic, disappear? My literary Arabic took a big beating. <laughs> I'm not very proficient in it. I, I speak Arabic, the you Lebanese do. Arabic. As you know, in each country, it's kind of different, slightly different uh, Arabic. Right.
0: And Rita, the reason I'm so interested in this um, is because, you know, when you grow up, as a girl in Queens, New York. <laughs> All of this, um, your background and where you lived and how you grew up is actually very um, appealing and very compelling and very dreamy to me. So I'm really enjoying hearing about this. But I think uh, living in these places also informs how you feel about the world and food. (laughs) And that's what we want to talk about. Definitely. So let's go to your childhood kitchen. Um, It it could be any of the places, either in Iraq or Jeddah, um, but your childhood. Who was in the kitchen with you? What are you smelling? What are you tasting? What are you eating? So it's Iraqi food, mostly. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, My mom was an excellent cook. Rest her soul, she's no longer here. Mm. She was a very good cook. She had some help. Um, We had um, a gentleman from Sudan, who's helping in the kitchen. So when my mom was traveling to see my brother and sister who were in boarding school in Lebanon too, at some point, he was in charge of the kitchen. And um, um, so it was, you know, the I brought with me a recipe of a, the, a rice with a, like, look at the equivalent of the tadig. Uh, for Wonderful. Iraqi. Yeah, the pasmati rice. Uh, and lots of fragrant stews and salads and...
0: And Iraqi food is the same as Persian? Iraqi is food, um,
1: the rice is, is very common, but mm-hmm. uh, I mean, to the two cultures. Right. Um, I, the rest is a little different. It's, I would say a lot of it is closer to uh, the Levant countries, meaning Lebanon, Syria, ah, interesting. Jordan.
0: A lot of kibbeh
1: in common. With and ground, stews, meat and, exactly, mm-hmm. ground meat. Exactly. Ground meat,
0: and, and yeah. So you grew up with these flavors I grew up with these flavors yes, yes and then so your mother was in the kitchen there was some help this man from sudan mm-hmm. and did you ever learn to cook when you were young
1: um not per se but i had a, a little bit of a sense of it uh, i have a funny story that happened uh, <laughs> when we were in switzerland my mom was traveling and then my father had he was hosting some people for dinner so he said, you're going to be in charge. You, with Rita. Abba. Yes, with the gentleman from Sudan. I was like, okay. <laughs> so he had his recipes. He was cooking. And then he's asking me to taste one of the dishes. And in Arabic, the same word, hot. Is it hot? Mm-hmm. Meaning, is it spicy or is it warm? You know, the temperature. temperature. And, of course, I understood the temperature. And it was pretty, like, lively spicy, you know. And right. I said, no, because he hadn't, you know, finished completing the dish so I said no not really Mm -hmm. he said oh more hot I was like yes more hot (laughs) so he kept adding yeah he added this (laughs) (laughs) the spicy part the hot part and so it was a little bit of a everybody was sweating at
0: the dinner table (laughs) I was like "Mm, time to learn how to clarify (laughs) But that is somebody, tricky, uh, but in English, too. Hot, hot, right? Yes. Hot mean, and spicy, right. and temperature that's is similar. Right. How, what would be the spice that they would use? Do you remember? How do you heat up um, Usually it was in,
1: in the but, curry, which is not typical to, to Arab countries, but it's very widespread. Uh, Are there curry, chilies or maybe you d- Yes, the, you know, the Aleppo pepper. Or, oh, or, Aleppo
0: pepper. Yeah, yes, yeah. that would. Oh, that's so We funny. call it
1: har, meaning it's hot. It's hot pepper.
0: Did your father forgive you?
1: I guess eventually. <laughs> <laughs> he happened
0: to love spicy food. I guess I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. So, Rita, does uh, spicy food go with champagne? And I'm asking for a very specific reason because this is the business you're in now, which I we will so. get to yeah, talk I about. I think
1: it does. I it do. It does. Because, the, the, first of all, the temperature of the champagne, which is pretty chilled, yes. and then those bubbles and the
0: acidity come as a counterpart. Right. Kind of ameliorates exactly, the uh, – yeah. it's a nice, it a nice combo. Out. Yeah, yes. it does. But back to your childhood. So I'm getting a sense of some flavors. And if you were to say a favorite dish, it was maybe this rice dish or? There's the right dish with
1: a, um, a stew that we made in Iraq with chicken and saffron and cardamom Ooh. and potatoes.
0: Oh, that sounds to delicious. This day, my,
1: my kids, when we get together, they say, can we have that chicken dish, please?
0: And does it have a name, or do they just call it it's that chicken dish? A,
1: it's, it's made with a special lemon in in that was found in Iraq, called narinj and the, uh, it's kind of, it's in it's in the citrus family. Obviously, right. it's uh, either a sweet lemon or a um, sour orange. Sour orange. Mm. Somewhere in between. They use that, that in
0: Spain too. They yeah, the Seville
1: kind of, oranges. Yeah. Yes. Right.
0: Yeah. And so. do you make you do make this dish? I do make this dish. So I you know. can teach this to me.
1: Yes. <laughs> Actually I can send you the recipe whenever you'd like. Wonderful. It's a beautiful dish and we make it with the saffron basmati rice. Mm. So you have a beautiful yellow feast.
0: It's amazing these childhood memories of taste and smell I think it's yes. smell that's so predominant right olfaction Absolutely, yes and and memory and we can't let go of these things no. and then we pass it down these become our our legacies
1: yes definitely. beautiful one of our sons blogged about it actually Christoph, you know our oldest son
0: he blogged even blogged about, about the recipe
1: and he put the recipe
0: in oh well, then I can just check out his blog and <laughs> we'll all have the recipe thank you so much <laughs> Rita, um, so what 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 came next? Where did you go to college? How did you finally meet Andre? How did the Paris connection happen? Okay,
1: so yes. when I was in Geneva, I finished my studies, French studies, and the exam is called the baccalauréat. So I I um, finished that, um, and then I stayed in Geneva, went to the University of Geneva,
0: huh.
1: and um, which was um, An interesting experience because I did the reverse of everybody else. I grew up away from home and then time to go to university, college. I'm home. So that was very strange.
0: (laughs) strange. But wonderful for you. Yes, Yes. Yes, definitely. And probably for your parents too.
1: Yes. So I finished my um, uh, license and degree in economics. Ah. Uh, it took four years, uh, which is a normal course. And then I started to work for my dad uh, because I wanted to learn from him. I was a very smart businessman, mm-hmm. extremely strict, which is the best way to learn for somebody who's learning. Definitely. Um, and then, unfortunately, my dad passed away and I had just met Andre mm. because uh, one of my friends in Geneva... Happened to be his niece, so she told me you should meet my uncle. <laughs> and I'm thinking, uncle, that sounds, sounds a little older really old, than right? me, <laughs> yeah. you know. And she says, no, no, you'll see. He he's very cool. He's very young and all that. So it turns out Andre is only seven years older than me. Uh huh. So we meet. We all go on vacation together, and then we start a romance, and eventually mm. uh, get engaged and get married in June '77.
0: Wonderful. And I mean, the reason why it's so interesting to me, because um, there's such a fascination with the food world and so many women, especially who want to be in it, and it wasn't so possible once upon a time. And... I think this is really the year. I believe it's taken four decades. I know I've been in it that long. But I feel this is the year of the female and female camaraderie and support and Definitely. empowerment. And you just feel it. It's very exciting. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I it's
0: don't beautiful. Know, it's it beautiful. beautiful. It is beautiful. I don't beautiful. know if these younger women really understand kind of what happened before or how this all happened or maybe – the way that we maybe paved the way for Had them the way a little was bit, paved, yeah. but yeah. I think we're kind of pioneers in in many respects. But I only think about you as, as a food person, so that's why I was a little curious. So you started economics, and and then you met Andre. That would happen. Then Andre
1: uh, Andre uh, was living at the Bristol in Paris. He was mm. actually born at the hotel, Ooh. which his father <laughs> founded. Yes, and when we uh, got married, I moved to Paris. And lived in the hotel, and then shortly thereafter, they sold the hotel, so uh-huh. we we left, uh, went into the real world, as I call well,
0: it. Well, I was just going to say, Rita, did that feel like a fairy tale to you?
1: It was a beautiful bubble, <laughs> again, <laughs> but um, it's uh, it, w- it was very hard for Andre. So when we, mm. you know, got out, uh, we lived in Paris, and then then the first time I really cooked because all these years when I was growing up, either in the boarding school where there's right. no access to cooking and at home with with my mom and the help, they were like, let me do that. I'll do that. So I didn't have really the chance to actually cook. Yes. Except give bad directives. But that, that's, <laughs> that's the extent of it. So when I was in Paris, uh, in our apartment, faced with the kitchen and the task of cooking the meals, I was like, easy, I'm going to call my mom, right? <laughs> so I'd call my mom. Now, what do I do with the eggplant? And now, you know, there weren't all these cookbooks or T No, Definitely of course no TV not. shows uh, at the no time. No internet,
0: so. no nothing. Exactly.
1: I burnt a couple of dinners and then, then I learned because I really, de facto, I didn't know how to boil an egg. So I learned by empirically.
0: You know, this is not an uncommon story mm-hmm. as I'm doing these wonderful interviews with amazing women. Uh, I think women of our generation, um, they were brought up a certain way and they were actually kept out of the kitchen. exactly And did not learn. And maybe it was a way, it looked like uh, an elegant thing to do, but in fact, it really was a disservice. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That was exactly my case.
1: It's later on that I, that I uh, had my cooking relationship with my mother who then, you know, taught me a lot of things. She wrote recipes, then we started to buy cookbooks. And then, uh, you know, when you like to eat, when you love eating, you kind of learn a little, I guess, a little faster.
0: Well, when we come back, we're going to hear more about what you've learned and the remarkable um, family you've created. And we'll want to hear more about the restaurant, but certainly about La Caravelle Champagne, because you are major in the Champagne world now as a producer of Champagne and as the mother of a son who created Sweetgreen. Yes. So all of that coming up. Wonderful.
1: Darkness falls,
0: mysteries unfold. La Caravelle. One of the most important restaurants in New York opened in 1960. And you and your husband took it over
1: in, in 84, 1984. So we had it for the last 20 years.
0: What so was that like?
1: 2004. Um, it was quite a ride. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of ups and downs, a lot of joys. Uh, the biggest one is the joy of hospitality, of hosting people in your guests, in your place. For me, that's the biggest highlight. Um, also, the wonderful cuisines that the restaurant was able to, to you know, offer uh, that evolved throughout the years.
0: Yes. Um, I mean, it was French and it was, it was classic com- in a way, but also so innovative. Exactly. That's end. why
1: without, you know, it was a fine line to walk on to have the some of the key dishes, the traditional dishes that we were known for. We did not let go of them, no matter who the chef was. And next to that, just for the chefs to feel a little more inspired, we let them do their menu, their own menu with the fresh ingre- with the ingredients of the season and more contemporary uh, preparations. So it was really the best of both worlds.
0: Now, Andre was the chef there? No, Andre is always it, front
1: of the house and
0: wine, yes. Front of the house and wine. Yes. And I know you had a very important wine list. And Rita, what would you say your role was there?
1: My role was um, a, a few hats I wore. Uh, one was the the office or the back office mm-hmm. um matters uh, because you majored in finance. economics and learned exactly. from your father <laughs> yeah exactly so that meant also um other than finance also managing the 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 team and um marketing pr and another big job is dealing with the chef which is a almost a full-time job
0: and you had several fame very we famous chefs. We had several chefs. Yeah. What were their names, Rita?
1: So we had um Michael Romano.
0: Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. Yes,
1: yes. Michael Romano was the chef for a few years. He probably had the most difficult task of all to bring a menu from a huge menu from the Escoffier days yes. to a more contemporary, you know, format and, and size.
0: And he's not French. He's American. And he's American, American and but Italian. French classically trained. Yeah. Yes.
1: French classically trained. But that was his training. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, wonderful to work with him. He's just such a gentleman and very talented uh, person. So he But how everything. lucky
0: for him to be able to learn under both of you as well. So. Yes.
1: No, it was a beautiful collaboration. He also, there was an important change when he came is that they used to do everything um, uh, served table side, mm.
0: which is now
1: coming back. <laughs> but so we said none of that, the sauces, everything. So everything was prepared in the kitchen uh, since Michael arrived.
0: That's a sea change for our, uh, big change. back of the house. Yes. 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 Big
1: change. So Michael, then we had... Um, not necessarily chronologically. Okay, mm-hmm. we had uh, um, Tadashi Ono who was oh my goodness, Rita, these were to like work the with.
0: M- biggest names in, yeah. in New York yeah, food. Yeah,
1: Tadashi Ono History. Who was a Japanese uh, chef, French classically trained, mm. and mm. a real treat to work with. Also, I learned so much from him about the you know that Japanese approach um, about less is more. Yes. Beautiful ingredients. You don't need too many components to make it shine, basically.
0: That's when everything really started to change. But yes. how really courageous of you as a French restaurant uh, oh, to go in this direction. Very much so. Very interesting. Yeah. And you were sort of the mother, keeping yes. everyone happy and calm and the customers. And Yes.
1: And w- when his menu came out first, I was very diligent, a little bit the Swiss approach, very precise, listing all the ingredients. So all of a sudden people saw like shiso and, and I was like, where are we? What is this? Mm-hmm. The guests were saying, this is not good. We don't want it. So I just asked the guests, "Let me ask you something. Do you like what you're eating? Is the food good?" They said it's delicious. So I was like, "Okay, say no more." I went back and changed the menu, the
0: wording. The wording. Yeah. And, and that that was it. And you know this is something that fascinates me and I care so much about, but the wording, the words on a page are just I don't even know if anyone realizes how essential oh how it tells the story. No one goes out just to eat a piece of chicken. It's how it's worded, what goes with it, what is said, what isn't said. Exactly. But I've never heard this story about taking away words, taking away what we call the sort of grace notes that usually sells a dish. Yes. But it was doing the opposite in your restaurant. Exactly,
1: exactly. So it really worked because we had also the two languages. We had Mm. French. The description of every dish in French and the translation in English. In the old days, when we took over, everything was in French only. So I told Andre, "This is ridiculous. We're in, a, we're in an English-speaking country. How can you do that?" Oh, this is the way it was always done. I was like, "No. You, how can you embarrass you know, like very your guests? Some of them super important. They're entertaining, and they don't have a fogged idea of what they're eating." So, anyway.
0: You know, I'm beginning to not have the foggiest idea of what I'm eating anymore either. (laughs) Things have changed so much and things have become so international, or so Asian. And I always said at one point that I could always, no matter what language it was in, I could always understand a restaurant menu. And this is no longer the case, right? Even in New York. Um, Rita, so you had the restaurant until when? Because I'm so interested in your kind of particular solo journey. Sure. Um, We had the restaurant until 2004.
1: So um, the restaurant existed altogether 44 years. Well, we had it for the last 20 years. And then... So like in happened, 98, yes. we had introduced the champagne in the restaurant for our guests as a house champagne. Uh, uh, it It comes from a tradition of Andre going when he was a little boy with his father to a place where they had huge barrels of wine made specially for the Bristol by La Mission au Brion, which is one oh of my. the beautiful, most beautiful Bordeaux appellation wines. Um, Very important, wines. Exactly. So he wanted to recreate that, to have it for his guests. And so we worked with the Champagne House, who, who did it for us. We also started a Bordeaux and a Cognac. And then when the restaurant closed, we thought we would stop everything.
0: Mm. So
1: our friends, our family, our guests asked, why don't you continue the champagne? And I was panicked. I said, what do you mean continue? (laughs) It's a very different premise. It's In a restaurant, there's one thing, and I have to go out and sell it, uh, products that have the name of another restaurant on it. Which restaurant is going to buy that? Anyway, it took a long, long time, a lot of perseverance. Um, Well, you said you were very
0: persistent. I am very persistent. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> and when I believe in something and I really, you know, think it's something that I have my gut telling you, keep going, keep doing it.
0: But it's know. part of history, this name and this
1: tradition. Yeah, exactly. It was a beautiful vessel for the, figuratively speaking, for the, the La Caravelle brand. Definitely. You know, which now is a full-blown um, champagne and so wine brand. So
0: you manufacture or produce or uh, do you grow the grapes for the champagne or you work with we the work champagne with a, house? We work with a winery, a with winery the, mm-hmm. in
1: Epernay. Uh, it's called the Castellan and it's part of the Laurent Perrier group. And they're wonderful people to work with. And they produce three cuvées for us of champagne. And, and what are they? So the Cuvée Nina, which is our uh, blend of uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and then we have a rose, rose champagne, which I like to call the double magic. It's oh, not just the, the bubbles, but also the, the colour. Color. <laughs> <laughs> like party in a bottle. <laughs> and then a blanc de blanc, which is hundred percent Chardonnay, the white grape, which is mm-hmm. why it's called blanc de blanc.
0: Yeah. Uh, is your champagne affordable?
1: Um, for the quality it's a great it's a great um, ratio, yes.
0: I mean, effect. I've had it. It's it's yeah. fantastic. Thank you. Uh, and not as pricey as some of the other really um, name brands, right. right, which you're really buying the name. I mean, you are with your La Caravelle, too. This is also a very important right. brand. But I think you like to tell the story about the, the fact that Champagne – isn't just for special occasions, right? It's, exactly. Uh, it's a wine, it's and a that's wine. why I
1: think. You... And, and it's just because wine, just because it happens to be have these beautiful bubbles, which take so much work to produce, uh, <laughs> and time and know how. Um, so yeah, champagne is also so versatile; it goes with so many different foods,
0: except with oysters. Well. I know. I mean, but that was always the classic pairing. But I'm not so sure that's the ideal. I Maybe a Sancerre it or something else, crisper yeah, well, and white. It depends on, like it. on
1: how sweet the champagne is or uh, not. Or um, I think it could work with with oysters.
0: Well, that's what they say. Yeah, <laughs> Rita, what do you think about uh, the wine world um, for women? Because I'm very interested in it, and I think many women who want to be in, in the food world care also very much about wine, but you work very hard and you pound the pavement and you have to, you're basically a salesperson. Yes. Yes, I am. So, so what, what do you think about this as a career path for women and how would women get started? Do you need to know a lot? Do you need to go to school to learn about wine? You have many different ways of learning Mm -hmm. about wine.
1: Uh, The best way I think is still to, with some guidance, to taste and find out what you like. And then taste, taste, talk to people who, who know about it. Uh, I am, I spend a lot of times with sommeliers and I just learn so much from them. Mm. And it's really a, a treat. Uh, and, uh, it's important. I think for women, it's, it's really, um, a very good path to follow if you have that in you, if you, if you want that. Women have a very good palate. Yes. yes. do you MSD. do you
0: think women do, I, I do. have better, more I do. attuned Even palettes? Even when than you men? don't
1: know anything about wine, you can detect some notes sometimes that um, you know, are not obvious. So
0: and when you're going to restaurants, um I guess a whole range of them, different ethnicities, different they're probably not all high end, but um no. What are you finding on the floor? Are there more women sommeliers and more women wine directors? Yes, yes. And I love that. I love that. And at the end of the day,
1: it's whoever's the most qualified for the job. Good point. So I don't want to say only women, but because that's not accurate. That's not true. But it's, it's uh, wonderful to see more women on, on, on in the wine world.
0: Amen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, hospitality in general. Hospitality. Absolutely. And I think this is what's connecting you to so many um, people, restaurants. When I say that you could really be the ambassador of hospitality in New York, I think this is one of, one of the reasons you, you get around. Thank you. That's a big title. I do go out a lot. <laughs> you have to. I do want to hear a little bit about your family that's ever-growing, about your legacy recipe, and what's meaningful to you right now. i Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold, and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. So you've had an amazing career path in the restaurant hospitality world in uh, Caravel for almost twenty years, and now running a champagne house and your own brand. And then you lived in the Bristol Hotel in Paris, I mean, so some of this is really very kind of high end and exotic. Did you want your sons? you have three sons Did you want them to be in the hospitality industry or in the restaurant world? That's a great question. Um We never pushed them,
1: but if they showed an interest which some of them did, we would put everything we could to help them help them start like for instance arranging internships, summer internships. Mm-hmm. That's how Nicola, at first it was all three of them. Then some of them, you know, that wasn't for them, but Nicola mostly, and then Patrick to some extent, he would ask me every summer. First it was La Caravelle, and then it was, um, Mom, can you call your friends in the industry and so I can go work at their restaurants for the summer?
0: And he and they would do and, it,
1: yeah, absolutely. There was Steve Hansen, the group of Steve Hansen, there was Danny Meyer, Union Square cafe uh there was um the Condé Nast, the cafeteria mm. at Condé Nast. when Nicolas arrived, he's a teenager doing summer internship. He arrives for his internship, and the chef had just left, so uh, not the chef, the g m the, the general Nast. manager, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so with the chef, they say, well, you're going to make it work with the chef. What an experience. And he was a teenager. He was a teenager. He learned so much.
0: But now we have to say yeah. what that experience turned right. into. That's because right. you, you, his name is Nicola? Nicola. Nicola okay. Nicola. So I know him as Nick, right? <laughs> <laughs> but exactly. your son, Nick, has gone yeah. on to do something pretty remarkable. So yes. with two friends. Well, Rita, you tell the story. <laughs> so Nicola went to
1: Georgetown, the University of Georgetown. and um. He met these two amazing young men, who all three of them were lamenting the fact that there was no healthy and good dining options for for them as college students, students. Mm-hmm. exactly it was either good but rich and fatty, etc cetera, etc, cetera, or it was healthy but as boring or downright bad, mm. so they, they thought there must be a way to to create food that we'd love to eat us as students. So they came up with a salad, uh, concept <laughs> and they just, uh, at first it was very hard. Everybody was laughing at their face and you know, like, oh, three, three kids, you want to sign a lease? Ha, ha, ha.
0: And three guys making three salad. Three guys, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Caring about salad <laughs> so. and not beer and burgers. Exactly.
1: But, uh, the year they graduated, they, they, uh, really, uh, started Sweet Green, a very small uh, location on M Street. In, in was, Georgetown, yes, that in was the Georgetown. first week. green? 500 square feet. Mm-hmm. And instantly it was the line out the door. And so they really hit a nerve because it's not just what they were missing, but a lot of other people. And then you saw not just students, you saw professionals, working people, eating there too. So, oh, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And what year was the first one open? It was uh,
1: 2007.
0: 2007, yeah. and they opened with one, and then a few more in Georgetown. First, yes. Rita, how many do they have now?
1: Oh, I think the be- between the beginning and the end of my sentence, it's going to change. <laughs> <laughs> Something like ninety-five, I think.
0: Ninety-five sweet 95, creams. Ninety-five,
1: yeah. Throughout the U.S.
0: That is so beautiful, and they're still partners, right? Three guys yes, still doing yes, this, still yes. good friends. Na-
1: Nate, uh, Nathaniel Rue, and Jonathan Neiman.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And I think what's so amazing about what they did and what they uh, clicked into was, yes, healthy eating, but there's a whole lifestyle thing that they had going on. And I know early on they did a music festival and even though it was muddy, you told me this, you went and you said it was worse than Woodstock, but like 40,000 people came and they had just opened. And I said to myself then – Wow. Something's really happening. Yes. Everyone needs to pay attention. It's a way of life. You know, yes. it's a
1: lifestyle. It's a culture. Uh, they also incorporated not only the healthy side, but the uh, sustainability side. The fact of working with farmers. In fact, when they uh, look at a, a prospective location, they first check if, if there are farmers around
0: that, that mm. can purvey- be purveyors. No farmers, no lease. That's it. Wow. Yeah. So if people want to look to the future, what's going to be happening next year, look to Sweet Green and see what they're doing, and then you know <laughs> that will be the truth um, coming up. And speaking of food and salads, you brought a legacy recipe for us, Rita. What is it?
1: I did. It's uh, the um, Iraqi-style basmati saffron rice. Mm. First of all, basmati in itself just smells so fragrant, this rice from India and Pakistan. It's um
0: And it's unforgettable. It's unforgettable.
1: It's just all of a sudden it dips into your memory and you just go, oh, (laughs) that with butter because I I prefer butter. Yes. I guess the French influence. Of course. (laughs) And what else is in there? So basically um, some saffron, I get the powdered saffron Mm -hmm. um, and butter Mm -hmm. and rice and water.
0: And three ingredients, that's my, uh, I like that. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Exactly. And, and so this is a, kind of a comfort dish for you this it's is a comfort dish and and it can all
1: it's very festive too I mean when you it's like a cake it's a beautiful golden cake that you produce because because you you use i use a, a nonstick uh, pan mm-hmm. pot rather and you invert it like a cake so it's very it's, it's pretty striking.
0: And does this get the crust on top when yes. you, it flip, flips yes. out? So there really is this layer, this Absolutely. different color. Crispy rice. Crispy yeah. rice. On that top. starts to brown just a little bit, golden. Uh, it's mm. magical. But it's very technique oriented. And I know sometimes when people just. Look at a recipe and say, oh, it has only three ingredients. Sometimes that's the most challenging yes. because there's and no cover-up. Rice, rice is pretty is tricky. tricky
1: to cook it, if you don't want it to be soggy or sticky or overcooked or undercooked. Yes. Basically, and you need to rinse the rice a lot to remove the starch as much as you can till the water runs clear. That's the secret. Like many times, yes, many, many times. And then if you have time to let it sit in water, it's even better, like a couple of hours. And then when you start, you you take a big... Pot full of boiling salted water, and you just throw the rice in there about four minutes. The test is when you can just with your nail just break it easily like huh. the nail. yeah, that's the test
0: that's the test, and that would be and in- then
1: you strain it, strain it mm-hmm. and then you put butter in the in the bottom of the pan if you have saffron, it could be tomato, it could be other other uh, condiments, so saffron with a little bit of water, butter. And then, when that comes to a board, you put in the rice and you you mix it up so that it all the, the color goes everywhere and mm. the butter goes mm. everywhere. Then you lower the 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 fire, the heat on it, and you put a um, a, a piece of uh, paper, either oh, paper a bounty towel? or or, oh. or a or a, a cloth. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm and sure in the old cover, days it was a cloth.
1: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and or or a cheesecloth is the best uh-huh. cheesecloth. And then you cover with a with a. In the cover of the pan, and you lower the fire and you let it just cook, which is great when you're entertaining. It's a very uh, thing you could do in advance. So
0: you would reheat it, or you just cook? no, you, you just would let it, it to... cook.
1: It needs it needs a good hour. Oh, it does. Yes, wow. And then um, you just invert it, and it's everybody goes
0: oh. <laughs> so this is a, a a legacy recipe and a cooking tip. In one, yes. because the way you know it's done is that you put it in between your nails and if right. it breaks in half yeah. easily, you yes. know that the rice is done. Exactly. That's fantastic. And Rita, what would you serve that with? Maybe uh, um, th- There's a,
1: a recipe that uh, we did in Iraq and my mom made it so well. It's a chicken. Um, is it the chi- chicken
0: that you is mentioned? It's the chicken that I mentioned
1: <gasps> earlier, yes. It's a yellow feast in front. It's just beautiful and the flavors are extraordinary. Mm. And
0: ideally, what would you serve with that to drink?
1: Um not a very strong red wine. Mm-hmm. Um you could have rose champagne with it if yes, you want. Yes.
0: <laughs> That's what oh. I'm thinking.
1: <laughs> rose being the heartiest of the, of all the champagnes. Yes. Um or a white burgundy or uh a, a or, or red burgundy if you mm. want, some light Pinot Noir. Yeah,
0: some dishes actually go yes. well with different Absolutely. wines for different reasons. Yes. But they're all really pleasant. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh Rita, that sounds so wonderful. Thank you. So this went very quickly, and I'm very happy to know more about your um, your life and your childhood. And I do ask everyone this question: um, What does one woman kitchen mean to you? Yeah, one woman
1: kitchen for the family first of all, mm. um, and then I would say for personal. Enjoyment because cooking is a, yes, it's a task. It can be a chore, but you can take so much pleasure from using you know new ingredients or recreating a traditional recipe. Mm. It's it's something fun. It's like something you're crafting, you know. So I think that's a great uh, source of joy, also. And then sharing with with uh, mostly that's the hospitality part. Sharing with the family, with the friends.
0: That, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Rita. How can someone get in touch with you?
1: There are many ways. Um, uh, my email, Rita J at La You can go on the website and leave a message, or you can reach me via social media: Facebook, uh, Rita Jamais or La Caravelle Champagne, uh, Instagram. Also, I have my personal pages, Rita Jamais. Just my first name. Rita name.
0: and J-A-M-M-E-T. Yes. Rita Jamais. Right. And I know you're really big on Instagram and social media. Some Many younger women have told me, wow, Rita's really cool on social media. <laughs> one
1: of my sons started me on that.
0: So, Good. Yeah. Then it became
1: Fantasia. Couldn't stop. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Rita, thank you for being here with me in my kitchen. And thank you to you for listening to me and Rita. Thank you for having me. It was a very special moment. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold. And check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden. Written and performed by award winning singer songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening.
1: This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and
0: connect.